Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome back my good friend, Alistair McDonald. Hi, Alistair. Mike, it's great to be back. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. So without further ado, let's jump right back into the continuation of the previous episode. Um, We were chatting in the past about what's happening out there and... um, we are heading into a likely recession. There are no guarantees, but a lot of data is pointing. And I love some of the data points uh, that you've talked in the past, that the unemployment has reached a point where historically the 3.6% unemployment is usually as low as it goes. So it should start rising from here. Obviously, uh, rapidly rising interest rates create a ton of risk for uh, a lot of parts of the economy. The US economy is heavily leveraged with chip debt. And high inflation is still out there and supply chain. And we were both chatting about how there are many, many ships that can't pick up their um, cargo in Chinese ports because they're having a new round of of shutdowns. So uh, any other quick comments about the world first, and then we'll talk about what can people actually do about it? Yeah, well, since we last spoke, we have quite a bit of data coming in to support the case that we are probably, as I shared last time, already in a recession. Uh, Because they're a process and not an event, it's extremely common for individuals to not feel it uh, until it's, I don't say too late, but uh, really too late. So we've had, for example, the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index Estimates were coming in at 65, it fell to 59. Uh, We've seen, we've now actually the concerns of recession themselves. We've already seen four consecutive quarters of negative real producer uh, of PDI, which only happens in recessions. Uh, Equally, the rolling over of the labor market, the desperation to find employees. Our instinct is to extrapolate that out into the future and say, oh, it's Unemployment's at 3.5, 3.6. It's only going to get worse. Historically, it it you know it, if you're a if you're an employer, it's only going to get worse. Which is to say, unemployment will fall further. But we're already at the strained end of what is beautifully a cycle. And we could look back. You know, uh, St. Louis Federal Reserve has excellent charts and data that uh, all of the listeners can access that shows the 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 variability, essentially the range of unemployment numbers uh, going back 75 years. And we're at the top end, or actually the bottom end of unemployment numbers. So this is a trend that is just based on no opinion required, just looking at the data is approaching its end, which is to say the new trend or the next half of the cycle will mean rising unemployment. So uh, we've got a really strange cross uh, section of crosswinds rising consumer prices, declining consumer appetites. Uh, I mentioned, I think when we last spoke, that over the last, uh, going back a year ago, through the COVID uh, stimulus period, consumers forward consumed eight years of of durable goods. That's a monstrous gorging on appliances and lighting and home decor and furniture and so forth. You know, we can only do that so many times, eight years of forward consumption. Uh, which was, as we discussed, 
adding to the bottleneck of supply issues. We couldn't produce stuff fast enough and factories in China were in lockdown. So there is an element of this inflationary cycle that is uh, forming a short-term peak, but not a long-term peak. So I think that we, uh, people, you know, of course, are laughing about the transient nature. Inflation is not transient, but I believe that the spike uh, is likely to slough off a little bit going into the third and fourth quarter of this year, which means for those that are completing build-outs, for those that are expanding, they're likely to find themselves with cheaper commodity prices by the fourth quarter, uh, but cheaper relative to where they were, where they are today, but still more expensive relative to where they were a year ago. Uh, so a great time to wrap up some of those projects before inflation turns around and heads north as we recover from whatever it is that lies ahead of us. <clears throat> Excuse me. So a number of data points coming in to really just affirm, uh, uh, affirm some of the stuff that we discussed last time. Yeah, thank you for the great wisdom sharing the data. Uh, I agree with you. Um, it is a process and uh, we're likely already in a recession. Just curious what's gonna be the print for the uh, Q2 GDP, but it's, it's probable it could be a negative print. Um, and even if it's not a negative print, uh, directionally, like you said, we, we are, we're heading there. So what can folks do now proactively? Uh, most investors have portfolios. They, they, they put their money, they made decisions in the past. They, the money could be sitting in capital markets like stocks, bonds, um, various types of funds, and various alternatives, energy, um, real estate. And uh, some of those investments are multi-year, illiquid. You can't really exit them easily. You could sell publicly traded stock, but you can't exit a partnership that you have in real estate. So what, what, what folks can do, and again, real estate doesn't mean things are going to go all down, just more of a, uh, there's some headwinds and um, uh, what moves can investors make specifically evaluating their portfolio, taking hedges, are there insurance policies they could buy, any kind of um, protection mechanisms or some kind of rebalancing acts or uh, somehow getting liquidity and sitting on the sidelines with cash and waiting for uh, greater opportunities. What do you think? Uh, I think that the, you know, the, the, if you want to win, start by not losing uh, is an old saying that's always made sense to me. I think that the critical thing at this point is what, are, what is it that investors should stop doing? Uh, because if we are entering the next half cycle, we have to change our behavior, not just necessarily our holdings. Uh, outside of inflationary concerns, I think the longer term risks evidenced by now to everybody, the clients and I have been discussing this since August of 2020, is the upturn in interest rates. That is going to cause, th that is a far greater systemic and immediate risk than inflation. Inflation, having navigated it myself, the greatest hyperinflation in history, uh, is certainly a problem, but I don't think that it is as critical and pressing and large a problem. That's more of a protracted erosion of value and net worth over time. Uh, interest rates are really where the risks uh, are, in my opinion. So since uh, July of 2020, we've seen longer term interest rates turn up. And as with anything, it's sneaky at first. And then we only notice it here in the last few months as mortgages have, in some cases have uh, effectively doubled since April of 2021, uh, mortgages in particular. So it, it is typical late cycle habit 
that we start increasing leverage right at the time that we shouldn't. And in our boldness, of course, in the case of real estate, it didn't really matter what you did in real estate. It was going to work out perfectly since 2009, 2011 with the double bottom in real estate. So everybody has looked like a genius. It didn't require a particularly sophisticated business model uh, because favorable business environments allow even rookies to look sophisticated. The next half cycle uh, exposes those between the, the, the difference between those who have experience and have a, what I call a full cycle entrepreneurial understanding versus a half cycle rock star type status, which there's no shortage of today. So one of the late cycle phenomena, most common, is not just an increase in the use of leverage too late in the cycle, but particularly using leverage with short term borrowing. Uh, so we'll take out monstrous mortgages, but then our, our regular day-to-day -day, uh, transactions are where the risks are. This means that businesses that rely on lines of credit, for example, to meet payroll or, or uh, purchase inventory, they are really going to find themselves in a tough spot. If you need uh, liquid capital from some kind of line of credit to keep that's just been your, your preference of business style. It's worked perfectly for 10, 12, 14 years. Uh, but those are the individuals that are likely to get squeezed. Equally, the type of real estate deals where people are borrowing money short term with the anticipation of flipping and so forth, and also in the short term to capture the gap between somebody say borrowing money short term at 10% to uh, lend it out short term at 20 if interest rates continue to rise, and it's not just collect, we use the term interest rates. Well, interest rates for what? Uh, high yield corporate bonds, this is really where, uh, this is the time bomb. I know we discussed that last time. So the highest confidence prediction that I can make is a widening of that credit spread between high quality debt and low quality debt which has narrowed, we call this the credit spread or credit quality spread. Say the government, the difference between a, a two-year government bond, high quality, and a two-year corporate bond or a junk yield bond, a junk bond at say 3%. That gap does not represent the true risks that you're taking on there. So the widening of those two could mean that government bonds continue to stay where they are or fall. Uh, and high yield or junk bonds or short-term lending uh, type operations could see a significant rise because of the risk premium is finally being repriced uh, or stay where it is and interest rates could fall again over the course of the next six months. That wouldn't surprise me. The difference is the gap. The gap between the two is where a lot of, uh, I would say, speculators in real estate, they call themselves investors. I consider this speculation. Uh, those I would look under the hood at some of the deals that real estate investors and how exactly are the various providers and partners you're working with? How are they, how are they, where are they getting their money from? Under what terms, at what rate, and for what time? Uh, and how it is there an alignment between the risk of borrowing and the risk of what they acquire and the ability to sell it uh, or trade it? Thank you for that wisdom. <clears throat> what I heard and what, I, what I'm reading is. Uh sell the junk bonds, don't hold them because uh, the risk profile on those is increasing. And at the end of the day, if um, the treasury rates go, go up, then the yield on, on junk bonds is gonna go up even faster, widening the spread. And that's, right. that's certainly going to be um, 
uh, a negative return type of scenario. But going back to the real estate, what I have seen um, investors do today, at least, at least the prudent ones, they go into projects that have substantial value at component, uh, maybe renovations and then repositioning and then increasing rents. And typically those are quiet with some kind of bridge debt. It doesn't have to be a bridge, but it, it's not a permanent debt project. These are not long-term Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac backed mortgages. It's more of a, uh, insurance company products and other or bank products. Uh, but the most common practice has been buying rate cap. That's been the, uh, the way to hedge against rising interest rates. And I think it's almost critical today. You can't almost go into any of these projects without uh, purchasing rate cap. Is that good enough to provide at least, basically you stress testing your scenario, even though you're borrowing short, but with a rate cap, you know how bad can it get? And if you can survive that, is that still okay uh, in today's environment? So uh, we're basically now going into mitigation strategies. Um, how do we protect against uh, rapidly rising interest rates and the impact on whatever business you're in? If you're a real estate investor or like you mentioned, if you're running a business that's relying on debt to operate. That's a great example of, of, of something for individuals to consider. And the critical piece here is the assignment, the implicit assumption and assignment of time. So if we say, hey, I've got this bridge loan uh, and I've got this rate capped, let's say for two years, and it's great by then the project will be complete. That rate has to be based on the assumption that the market environment is going to be as friendly in two years time uh, as it is today. So while we can feel confident that we've locked in a rate for a period of time, that rate is essentially our state, our unstated but implicit expectation that the 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 item I'm purchasing uh, or trading is going to retain its or increase its value over that same window. So this is an extremely important distinction. Nobody is really paying attention to. And you will hear borrowers and lenders, or mostly borrowers, saying it's great, we've got this locked in. Yes, but the assumption that's hidden in the formula is an extrapolation of some kind of increasingly favorable real estate environments or this particular project, stable or increasing values, something like that has to not just match that timeline, but exceed it. It has to exceed it uh, for you to successfully navigate that deal. So when I see or hear about some providers that are, say, borrowing money at 12%, which is an exorbitant rate, in my opinion, in this environment, and going out and flipping deals, you, you are, you are really, you really, it's a very strong example. Uh, I think a dangerous, but by real time, I know to be true, active example of somebody assigning a future value with a very large upside or at least deep, deep stability to price and most critically, demand. Will demand be as strong for, is someone else going to buy this from you when, when, and it's just a matter of time, it doesn't actually matter for our conversation when it happens, we know it will, when unemployment numbers start to rise again as they reach the end of their bandwidth here. That could happen in nine months, it could happen in a year. But again, if we see a turn up in unemployment from 3.6 to 4, 4.2, 4.5, still within historical extremes, very low, uh, is that appetite and the means going to be there to buy this project from you in that time? These are, it, they've worked beautifully. 
but this is what cycles do. What used to work no longer does. That's a great point. That's part of the stress test scenario in essence. For one, you mentioned stress testing uh, for the future interest rates. So whatever the luck you have today, by the time you're done with your bridge loan, what if the rates are higher and you're projecting to refi at a lower rate and you, you can't get there, which is yes. uh, substantial risk. And the other one is a valuation uh, risk. Whatever value add execution uh, strategy on a project, did you succeed? And, and even if you succeeded, now is the value where it was projected to be or is the value where uh, you need to be at minimum to be able to uh, make sure the project is, is sustainable on the long-term basis. That's a great point. It's basically a form of a stress test, I guess, right? And just trying to think, think about it. How do you call it? It's a stress test. Right. It is. And part of it is almost, I've got to say, north of 75% of what I see in the real estate space today. When you look under the hood, everybody's solution, just about everybody's solution is, well, what happens if this happens and we can't rent, we can't sell, no problem, we'll refinance and now pause right there. That is an extremely dangerous extrapolation of what was a 42-year trend from 1980 to 2020, uh, to really 2020, 40 years of that's, that bet was safe. Well, worst case scenario, we'll just refinance. Oftentimes it's sold as we'll refinance, give you your money back. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But we refinance uh, assumes, again, that interest rates will be as or more favorable than they are now. Or I'm going to start pushing out the term of that commitment, which structurally changes the ROI calculations and retroactively realigns everything that we originally sold on, including what we sold ourselves on. So that, that default... Is the, is the psychology and mindset of somebody for whom that has worked their whole investing life. We could always refinance. Uh, now, again, maybe we can, but these are bold uh, assumptions that we don't think of as bold because they've worked for 40 years. Yeah, it's a great point. And we've, you know, we look at the deals day in and day out. We look through these performance spreadsheets um, almost every day. And you, you're right. There are two critical um, data pieces, assumptions. I mean, they, they are future value uh, assumptions and future rents. So it's future rents and the interest rates. And um, also the cap rates if it's a sale. And a lot of assumptions uh, are like this. Hey, the cap rate today is 5.5% for this asset, but we're going to be conservative and we are going to assume we could sell it for 6.5%. Now, directionally, that's the right type of assumption. Yes, you, you, you are preparing for things to get worse. But your uh, word of caution is that, is that assumption a stress test? Uh, yes. We're going in that direction. We're probably going to get there, but what if we exceed that? What are the, at that point of time, it's not six and a half, it's seven, seven and a half. And the sensitivity uh, to the high interest rates is substantial. Uh, but uh, what do you think is a small deviation from uh, what you said? Yeah, it's been a 40 plus year pattern of dropping interest rates. I mean, we, we started, we're going back to the rates picked um, where somewhere in the early 80s. I don't remember when the- 81. Yeah. 81. And then they start dropping, dropping, dropping. So we are this very long 40 year cycle plus. And there's so much debt that the system has observed. Uh, at that time, the, the debt was expensive and there was a lot less of it. Now there's a lot more debt. Can we really afford this? 
it's almost to the point where uh, it becomes a systemic crisis for the entire U.S. economy to, uh, if the rates climb uh, substantially higher, it, it is almost to the point where uh, only, well, not all, but a lot of equity investments will get wiped out and the debt holders will take over uh, because of inability to service the debt. Uh, is this a, I mean, obviously it's a risk, but how much really do we need to think about? Fed's going to raise, and Fed has shown, what do you call it, um, even though they're independent, but they also listen to the political song. I don't know how else to put it. They, 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 they basically, uh, politicians need to get elected. And every time we come into the election cycle and there's a lot of pressure on Fed that they, they have to slow down their um, loosening or well, tightening in this case, right? Loosening is usually, usually friendly, but tightening is, is something that we're coming into midterm elections, uh, which may put a little pressure. And then who knows in, in two years where we're going to be at the presidential cycle. But it feels to me that uh, the, the risk of really right heavily rising interest rates has almost like a practical cap. So it's got to, as much as the interest rates have to go higher, but at some point of time, the Fed will come in and say, that's enough. We've done enough damage. Yeah. And it, the Fed will do what the market tells them to do, as they've always done. Not just the, the Fed, but the ECB, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, all do the same thing. Uh, you were there at the event where I showed all of those charts. You know, no opinion required. They will follow the market. That's what they do. So for the listeners out there, just simply do, you know, do the actual, not even research, just pull up the data yourself. Look at the US two-year note. Uh, and overlay the federal funds reserve rate on top of it. You'll see that without fail, 100% of the time, they follow the market. They don't lead anything. Now, there's many that have tried to go against that with the, what's called a tautological argument and say the market's doing it in anticipation of the Fed. It doesn't change anything. The market is still leading, you know, saying I did this because I knew you were going to do that. Uh, well, I'm still a leading indicator. I am. So uh, it's a frivolous argument against the case that the data clearly makes. Uh, so if you want to know when the Fed will stop rising, raising rates, it will be when the two-year stops rising. That hasn't shown any sign of doing so yet. So they are absolutely squeezed into a corner. But more than that, what they are is revealed for the Wizard of Oz that they really are. Uh, and that's, I think, it's one of the reasons that I pay no attention to what they have to say, because I know exactly what they're going to say and what they're going to do. The bond market has already told us. Uh, the, I think the, the widening credit spread is something to be concerned about, the use of short-term money. Equally, how often and how frequently these days deals are being made with the assumption of ongoing access to hot money. So this is private equity. You know, I've come to really believe that the last 40 year falling interest rate cycle, the whole private equity phenomenon is absolutely just a derivative, a function of the generation of falling interest rates. That's what it is. You, you, we'll see what private equity looks like 10 years from now. I would be surprised if it goes the same way. You know, we used to love hedge funds uh, 20 years ago. And now we love, you know, excuse me, private equity. Uh, it's what was timely and what was a cool way to aggregate and offset risk, purchasing assets with other people's money and pushing the risk onto the next investor. So that that era is approaching its end. It doesn't happen overnight, uh, but that that seems to me to be entirely a function, not a coincidence, a function of falling interest rates. 
And this is critical for a lot of individuals that are looking to sell and exit their businesses. Uh, there's more there I'd love to talk about, but that, that probably is a different rabbit hole. I don't necessarily want to pull you down. Yeah, but we'll, we'll, we'll continue another time, but let's go back to the theme of this uh, whole conversation. So what else can investors do? Uh, obviously, um, we're anticipating uh, certain uh, outcomes and, and, and a few things people can't do anything about it. If you run your business for too long uh, using debt, now you are squeezed by the, by the high interest rate. Uh, you have to make some decisions. Maybe um, as a CEO of your business, you, you can raise some equity capital and reduce reliance on debt. Is that a prudent move? Uh, another set of questions, uh, again, for passive investors who are not active operators, just more of what, what else can they do with their money? Obviously, deal selection is critical, at least with the, with, with the, with the existing, uh, sorry, with the new cash, uh, the underwriting of new deals and the more conservative uh, view and downside protection are the things that make more sense now versus aggressive and speculative invest investing. But the question is, Deploying fresh cash, is it better to sit on the sidelines or uh, and look for more conservative deals? And then what folks can do with the existing portfolios? What moves can do? Uh, can they make to um, hedge, rebalance, um, basically mitigate the risk? Uh, one of the basic exercises we're going through, at least as a, as a fund management company, we're going through our investments. So we're having conversations running a fund to fund models we have many investments. So what do we do? We talk to the uh, operator sponsors who are running those assets. And we're trying to get a pretty good idea where they're at, uh, how the assets are performing. Are they running into problems? What are these problems? Do they see risks related to the rising interest rates? And these conversations are not always fun, but they're important. And um, most investors should go through the same exercise with their own uh, portfolio. Um, and before, with Without data, it's hard to make decisions, right? You need the data. The data will tell you the picture. If the picture looks like you've got some problems, what can you do about it? Yeah, it's a really critical exercise, and it's an exercise of mind, uh, uh, mental tenacity and mental uh, value, really. It, it's always interesting to me when I, you know, there's this, there's this kind of irony here where, you know, I speak with business owners who, are not in touch with their overhead, for example. And I want to be able to say to anybody that I work with, what's your current overhead, fixed and variable expenses. Uh, and if they can't tell me, it's normally followed by, it's just not really, like I feel uncomfortable looking at it, or it's not, when they're honest, they, they, if they're dishonest, they'll say, it's, I don't have time for it, which is ridiculous. Uh, but if they are being honest, they say, it just makes me uncomfortable. Well, if looking at the numbers makes you feel uncomfortable, you're avoiding what is going to be a far more comfortable lived experience. So if auditing your portfolio for its merits, not just its risks, but what qualifies, and we spoke about this in our last conversation, what qualifies for my investment? What are my personal rules and principles? How much risk am I looking to uh, tolerate? <clears throat> in the service of what possible. So what, what qualifies? What is the cap rate that I insist on? And to the extent that it doesn't exist, 
I will not allocate capital to it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's a great time to revisit your rules. If you don't have any, you're going to learn some. Uh, in my own experience, I've had many years of not having rules, being seduced by cap rate or yield or, or PE or growth, whatever it is, without a comprehensive rule system. And I was forced by scar tissue to develop one. Uh, so if you don't have rules, you're going to develop them. Unfortunately, it's going to cost you uh, a lot to, to learn that lesson. So if you're uncomfortable analyzing the risks in your portfolio, you're going to be extremely uh, uncomfortable with the results of that. You know, these, if there are problems there, find them now. If there aren't, you at least have the peace of mind of knowing that you've run an audit and you see the risks and you take responsibility for this allocation and you're comfortable with it and write it down, write an email to yourself, remind yourself that you're aware of ABC uh, and you pressed on regardless, or you reviewed it and you decided that you're getting rid of C, but keeping A and B. Beautiful. We just need to take responsibility for it because to ignore it or to be uncomfortable by the conversation, we overlook the fact that these conversations, this analysis will never be cheaper than now. It will never be cheaper to look at the, these problems, to look for these problems than now. Uh, and you don't even need to be apocalyptic about it. This is true in our relationships. If there is a conversation you're avoiding with an employee or a spouse or a family member, these conversations will never be cheaper in terms of the cost to your well-being or your pocketbook than right now. Yeah, that's a great advice. Uh, know your numbers. It's one of the three um, uh things that the CEO should do. You even being CEO of your own money, be a personal investment CEO, you have to know your people, the culture, and the numbers. If you don't know the numbers, like, like you're saying, it, it, it's only going to get worse. And, and <laughs> yeah, if you don't know your numbers, you, you're not going to know if you're getting better or worse. That's another problem. So yeah, you need reminds the baseline, you need the rules for sure. It reminds me of a lot of you know little kids when they're say three or four and they're playing hide and seek. And they run into the corner of the room and they cover their eyes, thinking that they, you can't see them, you know, <laughs> because, because I, they can't see me, I can't see. It's just a, we're, we're, we're lying to ourselves, you know, we're cheating at solitaire. Uh, and we can do it and look like amazing solitaire players, but, uh, you know, the, the, the results are a farce. That makes total sense. I appreciate the wisdom. Um, any other quick thoughts on... What else can folks do today? Um, basically, uh, any other bright ideas? We talked about stress testing. We talked about uh, looking at the portfolio, looking at the numbers, knowing what you got, knowing what, what conditions you have to uh, worry about, some very specific thoughts on um, spreads between the quality uh, government bonds and, and, and junk bonds. Uh, and, and obviously, we really love the point, which is, this is the most fundamental point, that the Fed always follows the market. And yes, I've, I've spoken to some really sharp folks saying, well, the reason the market leads the Fed uh, decisions is because the Fed signals what those decisions are going to be. And that's the chicken and egg problem. But in reality, if you follow the data, the Fed follows up this. So um, what else can investors do today, practically speaking? Is there, uh, just to deviate a little bit, is energy a good sector to go in? I always worry about um, energy prices being so high. 
And I remember years ago when the oil was over $100 a barrel and I had opportunities to invest. And uh, I didn't invest for, for various set of reasons. And the projects that looked very attractive at that time completely collapsed when the oil price dropped below $40 a barrel. It was like, at that point, you, <laughs> you couldn't keep the, those, those wells pumping because the cost of production was higher than the, the, the price of oil. So are we going to see this cycle again where oil and gas are going to be expensive for a few years and then at some point um, maybe a recession will slow down the demand because that's what normally happens, right? Recessions slow down the demand. Exactly. Uh, it's demand destruction, right? Higher interest rates, what, what do they do? What is Fed doing? They're destroying demand. At the end of the day, it's a demand destruction. What do you think? Exactly. Yeah, that's a great example. And to come back to that point of time, uh, what is common after you know seeing the price of oil literally move from zero, from negative, to you know the price that it is today, you know 80, 90, flirting through you know hundred dollars, et cetera, et cetera. That is a monstrously powerful trend. And so later in that trend, more offerings come to the marketplace. Investors are seduced by the previous trend. Uh, and immediately jump in. I understand it, no problem. I've certainly been a trend follower and uh, uh, I've arrived late in the cycle in many things and paid a price for it. So certainly have no judgment. But what we have to be careful about, as you point to, is if I'm binding myself up in a multi-year commitment at today's prices, even though I believe that in the long term, uh, energy prices are going to continue to increase, and the case could be made that certain oil companies are still very cheap, despite having a monstrous rally over the last two years. They're still relatively, as in compared to, say, Netflix, they're still very attractive. However, in a lot of these private deals, will today's lock-in costs be able to survive this cycle of reversion to the mean in unemployment and demand destruction that comes from exactly as you say, unemployment numbers rising uh, and interest rates rising alongside them. So we can be right, we can have the right idea, but if our timeline of commitment of capital doesn't match uh, that trend at the exit or the, the, uh, the spinoff of demand between here and year five uh, to produce that sort of income from the wells, it's gonna be a great idea bad timing or great ideal deal structure is thing. And this is something, I mean, nobody knows more about good deal structure than you. I mean, you quite literally teach it. So I think the most important element for the next three years is going to be paying attention to the inherent time-bound assumptions of deal structure. What are the time assumptions? Uh, nobody really realizes this or talks about it. But if you are in business, you're in the forecasting business. If, for example, a dentist decides that they want to add one more operatory, that's a forecast. And they're basing that forecast on current demand. So when a store owner decides to increase their inventory or expand their square footage or offer new services or more of them, these are forecasts that they're making. But nobody teaches forecasts. And so what we end up doing is defaulting to what would have worked in the last five years or 10 years, fill in the blank. Uh, so we are actively in the forecasting business. So deal structure with a specific attention paid to the inherent time-bound necessity. There is a necessity of assumption here that this has to happen by this time in order for this to work out. Basically, everything is a giant options trade these days. 
So that is an awesome commentary. And I want to shift a little bit. Uh, we're running out of time, but let's just take another five minutes. Um, this is a great discussion. So forecasting is a powerful, as powerful as it is, it's hard to do. And most of us forecast future based on past uh, results. And that's just a natural behavior. The challenge is, um, and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger uh, stated this more than once, they do not make the decisions based on the forecasts. They don't believe those forecasts. The forecasts are hard to do, things change. They make the, the decisions based on fundamentals. Uh, yes. They'd rather buy great business at a fair price than a fair business at a great price. And they certainly put their money where their mouth is writing number of checks in the energy companies, they, they especially uh, in the recent uh, weeks and months. So uh, from that perspective, they're buying fundamentally great businesses uh, in this steel energy price uh, increasing market. Uh, but uh, but the, the concern is exactly that. If you're writing a fresh check into a business that is uh, locked for very long horizon. I was actually looking at an oil deal uh, literally a few uh, days back and I looked at it and this is new wells. They got the, the land has to get... Um, permitted or maybe land is already permitted and the, the, the drilling and all, all the investment will take at least a couple of years before the production. And then the assumption is that the oil will, will maintain certain price above a certain level. And that scares me because I, I don't know, I've seen this cycle before and we're entering kind of late in the cycle of energy cycle. I don't know, maybe it's got a couple more years of expansion uh, or not. We, we don't know that. So um, you, you definitely want to be buying ahead of the trend. You, you, can be a contrarian as much as possible because the trend is your friend until the trend changes. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, with the, uh, as I say, over the long term, I'm certainly convinced that oil will be higher. But how long before we're higher than 115, where we today, WTI is at 114? Uh, th there is, as I said, coming from zero, this has been a monstrous rally. Uh, is this a great time? Uh, this, but I love the fact that you mentioned Buffett Munger, and it comes back to the point that I was making earlier, which is merit-based. They have their own criteria for what qualifies for their capital allocation, and they never sell. So as long as they can buy a business that they feel can run the full cycle, that has stable, predictable, as Munger always says, a durable competitive advantage, uh, then they'll allocate capital. Uh, there are very few of those around. It's not a coincidence that they're still sitting on more cash at Berkshire than they ever have in history. That's nothing that's, that we shouldn't overlook that. They are comfortable doing things most of us are uncomfortable doing, uh, including applying discipline and being comfortable sitting in cash. And I'm just are, curious, how much cash do they have relative to the company valuation? I, I don't know if you know this data off the top of your head. They're sitting the over 100 billion. And have, yeah. Yeah. Just, just what percentage of, of cash is still reasonable to keep? Uh, it, it was really interesting. I was listening to Bloomberg, and we're almost done. <laughs> I was listening to uh, Bloomberg uh, TV, and there was an executive from Voya. Voya is an insurance company. One of the questions that was asked to them how much cash do you keep? And the answer is we don't really keep cash because we invest for a time of long term. We can't keep cash. The cash is incredibly bad for the balance sheet. So some players are just forced to deploy their cash because of because of that chapter. While Berkshire Hathaway is a very different beast. 
with the super long-term investment. It's almost crazy to hear this. You're talking about uh, 89 year old and what 98 year no Warren's now how old 91 and uh, Charlie is 90, 98 96, 97 yeah I think these two brilliant gentlemen are investing for long term in the age <laughs> in their 90s as if they they they, they plan um, I like to crack this joke uh, Woody Allen said I don't want to achieve immortality through my work I want to achieve immortality through not dying. It feels like these, <laughs> these gentlemen are working the same way. Yeah. Well, it, it points to, I think, a beautiful, certainly a beautiful way we could wrap up is they do that because they consider themselves shepherds of capital, stewards of others' resources. So this is very different than the rock star CEO who's trying to be and stay in the spotlight and struggling to stay relevant. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the kind of... Uh, iconic American CEO that's all about them and their quarterly numbers. I really respect the timeline difference we see in the East versus the West. Here we live on 90-day quarterly numbers, but Toyota is operating with a 100-year business plan. Uh, how many people can name the head of a large US or uh, auto manufacturer? Many people can. How many can name the head of Honda? Nobody can because they're not there for them. They're there they're shepherds, they're stewards of capital. So for our friends and listeners out there, you are stewarding capital for your family too. And I love the point you bring up. They're still, they take that responsibility seriously. They know that they're making decisions that will echo through multiple generations. Uh, the question for us is, are we? That's great. Thank you, Alistair. Appreciate your great wisdom. Always awesome to have you uh, on the podcast. We'd love to have you back. But uh, all good things come to an end. So does this uh, interview. Great to be with you, Mike. Thanks for the, for the opportunity. I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.